The ones that aren't stepping up are our elected officials. If they won't act, we can vote them out of office. But there is more of us than there are them, right? And so we have to organize and mobilize in such unprecedented numbers that whoever they are, the best of them or the worst of them, they will not be able to avoid listening and hearing and acting to our demands. This, um, this is our 15th fire drill, our first in California. And I'm excited, <laughs> I'm excited not just because I'm home, but because I've realized this is the front line of the climate crisis here in California. And literally what happens here can impact the rest of the country and the rest of the world, for real. Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about some interesting develops in a supportive housing project that's been proposed in CD13, a bunch of state-level housing legislation that is still alive and had really managed to stay out of the spotlight while SB50 was still around and, you know, demanding everyone's attention all the time. Uh, a couple of other interesting housing stories and then a quick update on a disgraced former sheriff, but you can't guess who, uh, a jail reform bill that y'all definitely need to be tracking and supporting, and some uh, potential new voting rules at the state level, uh, as well as as Garcetti getting to stay rest assured in getting to keep his job. And finally, we're going to end up on a reason for why Garcetti absolutely should not get to keep his job, despite the uh, story before that. So <laughs> first, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. You know, we uh, we did that retreat a few weeks ago, and one of the things we decided was we're just always late. Uh, in this <laughs> in this case, I guess we'll just claim that we were waiting for the Iowa results because we really needed to know them. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that an app fucked that all up and the people who, uh, run that app are deeply connected to the democratic party and even apparently to the pod save America guys is like the least surprising bit of incompetence I've heard of in a while. Uh, 2020 is going to be so much fun from here on out. Like yeah. it's only going to well, get better. And there's even more fun news that was coming out today where the uh, Nevada Democratic Party had just hired a former Buttigieg staffer to manage like the integrity of their electoral process uh, for their upcoming primary. So that's a fun one. Um, <laughs> it's going to I think one of the things coming out of Iowa that really, you know, I think is amazing and just sort of like shows how what a stupid positivist project kind of the rule of law is. Like, they have the the uh, caucus uh, worksheets that they have to turn in that's like the official val tally of the votes. But they found, yeah. er they found errors on a lot of those different sheets. They're not allowed to fix them once they're signed. So even though there are errors on there, and we know there are errors there, we're not allowed to change it. Because the law says that's, no, that's now an official document of an election. That's so, so preposterous. That's so cool. utterly preposterous. <laughs> oh, 
man. Oh, that sucks so much. Yeah, um, but it sounded like uh, you also had a pretty exciting Friday. Yeah, so my, my Friday was uh, it got off to a, a very interesting start. You know, I we, we were supposed to be recording the podcast, but got a last minute call from uh, the folks who were organizing the Fire Drill Friday event at uh, City Hall. Um, turns out that the uh, folks in charge of the permits for this from the city's perspective had uh, changed their mind about where it was that the event was actually going to be allowed to take place. So they had a last minute change of uh, location, which meant that an hour and a half before the event started, they had to relocate the entire stage and all of the equipment and reset up from uh, City Hall East over onto the South Lawn uh, and those steps, which meant that they needed all, all the extra hands they could get to help uh, reassemble the entire getup and uh, get things rolling in time for the scheduled kickoff at 11. So it was a mad dash to get it all finished. And uh, we started a little bit late, but overall it went really well. And then I managed to get roped into uh, providing uh, stage security uh, ah. for uh, for one side of the stage because uh, they just didn't have enough folks for uh, managing all that over on that side. It was uh, interesting because I just got to stand there with my back to the stage watching the audience and making sure they didn't crowd up too much on the, on the area where the press were supposed to be able to get in to take photographs. So yeah, and then I saw a it was group of people and then I saw a group of people went and occupied the Maverick uh, Energy Building. Yeah. Uh, the lobby of their building, including Nithya Raman, uh, who was there. Yeah, so Obviously, she's running for CD4. Uh, but yeah, it looked like Sunrise was there and a bunch of folks that are like part of that coalition that does that. So a pretty cool first fire drill Friday in L.A. Yeah, and then uh, toward the end of the day, there was actually a candidate forum that I got to attend uh, for the CD10 race, uh, and it was really disheartening, actually, to see, you know, I, I, I do a bunch of work with the folks from K-Town for All, and CD10 is the, it's that's the district that K-Town for All operates in uh, almost entirely. So the, you know, having... Mark Ridley Thomas get up in front of, you know, get up, he was sitting the whole time, but um, from his position at the front of that, uh, uh, that gathered crowd uh, with the mic in hand, basically uh, denigrating the, the job that my friends and allies in K-Town for All uh, were doing, like trying to, to like actually improve the situation he he maligned us and what we were doing and it was really very disheartening and he uh, genuinely doesn't seem to understand like what the meaning of his opposition to uh the boise uh, martin v boise decision and his and his decision to vote to appeal mm -hmm. that to the uh, supreme court um it, it was a very frustrating very tense uh, evening with some uh, some interesting answers that were coming back and forth from the different candidates on these different issues. Uh, highly recommend that y'all check out that K-Town for All uh, Twitter th uh, thread on the topic that uh, Mike Dickerson was putting together, live tweeting the whole event. It was quite a spectacle. I'm glad I was able to go, but it was it was uh, <laughs> it was it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's turning into a pretty intense race. It, it absolutely is. So uh, we're hoping that, um, you know, Channing and Aura both have very good platforms. So I'm really hoping that one of the two of them is going to be able to make it through to a runoff. Um, but it did seem, at least in that audience, like uh, you know, Mark Ridley Thomas had absolutely wrapped up or at least been able to bring in the most supporters, um, which is I mean, not the fact that he surprising. even has a political career anymore is such an yeah. indictment of L.A. politics. Like that oh, yeah. last year, especially with his son, like 
just all of it. The guy oh, does yeah, not yeah. deserve another job paid for by taxpayer money. Oh, 100%. Like, he's, he's so, so effing terrible at this and so effing corrupt. And it's got to be he's so like, embedded in the system. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I think it's a stupid kind of, you know, like you have that comic book version of like a villain, like a kingpin who like wields soft power to get yeah. what they want. But like Mark Ridley Thomas is like Stanley from The Office. If he were like the kingpin, like that's what he kind of strikes me as. Just like not very <laughs> exciting, very boring, a very like I have two toasters type of personality. Um, and yet he's like <laughs> a kingpin of L.A. politics. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if I were Mark Ridley Thomas, I might do more interesting things than pay-to-play scandals through the University of Southern California. But you know, what, what do I know? Uh, anyway, well, so I mean, he did. He did apparently manage to like, like, just rush out a whole bunch of folks that were trying to challenge him and, and get them uh, disqualified from the ballot uh, in the in the. In I the mean, that's just called. Election, so that's just called paying for lawyers. Yeah. Well, no, it was like blacklisting uh, campaign staff and threatening folks. It, it was uh, it was a mess. But uh, that's a story for another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about a little bit more uh, bullying that's going on in the city of L.A. So the St. Vincent's Hospital, which is uh, I forget what area of town it's in. It's sort of north of downtown ish. Um, it, it pretty big facility it's pretty close to Echo Park. Yeah, but it's a pretty big facility. Uh, had an emergency room. Has been forced to shutter. Uh, pretty much by the owner of the L.A. Times, from what I understand. Yes. Go ahead and explain this to me, Chris. All right. Well, so it's it's. I'm not entirely clear as to what is going on here, but from what I understand, there is basically a competition going on right now between uh, L.A. County Board of Supervisors and the L.A. City Council to see who can like seize control over this property first. I mean, or acquire rather. Um, if any of them had any any guts to actually meaningfully address our, our uh, housing crisis, uh, they would leverage eminent domain to do this. But their, their plan from either side is to basically turn it into a uh, supportive housing complex and, uh, in, and just basically convert this existing structure that already has um, you know, a, a lot of the infrastructure in it that will be needed, uh, and tons more infrastructure than would be needed actually, yeah. to to be used for that kind of a supportive uh, system that is some a, a, an absolutely critical aspect of a complete picture, a complete solution picture to uh, dealing with the homelessness crisis here in the city and county of L.A. Um, Mitch O'Farrell is apparently the one who is. Uh, masterminding what's going on from the city council perspective. He is, of course, the chair of the Homelessness and Poverty Committee um, and the uh, the city council member uh, in whose district this hospital, former hospital, is located. Um, but I think one of the things that does seem to have gotten lost in a lot of the coverage that's been popping up on this is the fact that um, Mr. Xun Chung, the, the, the owner of the LA Times, uh, is the one who uh, used to own this hospital, or I guess maybe still does own the property. Um, and it's like, this is one of those things that we've mentioned in the past when we've talked about him, uh, is that he is renowned for buying up hospitals and uh, using them to purchase medical devices from his other companies and then running them into the ground and then selling them off once they stop being profitable. Yep. So it's a really weird, uh, just vulture capitalism culture thing that's going on 
And it's just kind of gross because we've we've mentioned this before, I believe, uh, in either a conversation that you and I had in the past or some someplace else. But like, what's going to go? What's going to happen for that community now that they've you know they've lost this hospital? Like that is infrastructure that used to be able to serve that local community. It's great to see it being potentially reimagined and repurposed for something else that would be very also very productive and and uh, a pos- a net positive for the community. But at the same time, like it used to be something that the community was relying on and now they're forced to go elsewhere because of, you know, these kinds of things that, uh, the, uh, the, the the owner of the LA times is alleged to have done in the past and, you know, seems to have had a pattern of, uh, it's, it's weird, but there were, there was, um, this was one of the agenda items that was brought, uh, to the housing, uh, the homelessness and poverty committee this past week. And it got a lot of attention from, uh, from folks who, who showed up to give public comment. Um, and a number of them that were there making some absolutely fantastic demands for, you know, saying good job. You're, you're doing the right thing with this proposal to convert the St. Vincent hospital into this supportive housing complex, but you need to do more. Um, and it's, it was really cool just hearing, uh, all of these other members from from organizations that we've not really worked uh, closely with in the past, getting up there and saying the same kind of stuff that uh, ground game members and our our other allies uh, are often shouting into the microphone in these kind of hearings. So uh, let's listen to a couple of clips of that. Hi, I'm Hi. Allison Schaller, and um, I'm glad to be here. Um, I, you know, I've been attending a lot of these meetings lately, and I am. Um, so grateful to be here because of this idea of repurposing the uh, St. Vincent uh, Medical Center because I feel like I feel like this is a great attempt, a great uh, idea to think outside of the box, to to create solutions right away. Hi, yeah, uh, my name is Sachin. It's close. Uh, I am the vice chair of Echo Park Neighborhoods Council uh, in your uh, district. Although obviously I'm here representing myself. Um, I'm also uh, a member of SELA Neighborhood Homeless Coalition um, and just consider myself generally an advocate for those who are unhoused. Um, my general public comment is about uh, services for those who are uh, considered low acuity. Um, I want to actually thank you for the, the thing you wrote about that. Um, it's, it's really an important issue. I think uh, providing services for folks who are low acuity is extremely important. These are folks who are often working, trying to support a family who just recently became unhoused, and these are folks that only need a little bit of help to get back on their feet. Um, it's really heartbreaking for me when I talk to someone who didn't score high enough on the CES and having to just be like, you know, hope, you know, if you get a disease in the next couple of months, maybe your score will go up and then you'll get some real help. Um, so that's something I'd really ask all of you to really focus on trying to provide more services for things like that. And Melina. Thank you so much. You. I first just want to say thank you to everyone here and thank you to everyone out here for all the work that you do, all the hours that you put in, and all the prayers that you say. Thank you so much. Um, we know that it's a tough job and we appreciate all your efforts. I was homeless 25 years ago. For 20 years, I worked as a banker. Uh, up until recently, I had a heart condition and now my five children and I are this close to homelessness again. I never thought that would happen. I thought that I was no longer homeless, but that housing insecure population is growing. Um, knowing that the St. Vincent de Paul is even a possibility made all of our hearts swell. 
It's exciting to know that we're thinking about different options. Um, I just want to say that I was in a shelter, I was in a group home, and I had a really great experience. They helped me transition out into independent living. And if it wasn't for all those programs, I wouldn't have made it. Thank you. Yeah, I guess let's move on to some more housing stuff because we're having a lot of developments here. Like, it'll be interesting to see how St. Vincent's gets pulled off and how that sort of changes. Um, it is kind of concerning that the idea that we have our hospital beds competing with our shelter beds for space or our permanent supportive housing beds for space is a little bit of a devil's bargain, it feels like. Uh, but anyways, let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, talk about like the broader housing picture, especially what's going on in the assembly, uh, because now SB 50 is dead, or at least for the moment. Yeah, so as, as we mentioned last week, uh, SB 50 is dead. Uh, long live SB 50. Um, the, we're, we haven't heard anything new out of uh, Scott Wiener's office that, and I haven't heard anything new anyway, um, relating to those placeholder bills that he was touting like the day after SB 50 died. Um, but there are some, some other bills that are working their way through the legislature that could really have a significant impact on how our, straight, how our state rather, um, addresses the housing affordability crisis moving forward. Um, first up is probably the most SB 50-like of the proposals, which is uh, Assembly Bill 1279, which is coming out of Richard Bloom's office. He's the representative uh, from Santa Monica. And it's very similar to SB 50, but the impact would have been would be limited to, quote-unquote, high-resource areas. Uh, these are areas that have lots of amenities, but with spread out low-density housing stock, like, you know, mm -hmm. the big central stretch of Los Angeles between uh, downtown and like the, you know, the West side or, you <laughs> or know, actually rather the entire West side <laughs> or, or Rancho park. Like, Oh yeah. There's all of so it. Like, many neighborhoods, huge. especially along the expo line that could definitely, <laughs> definitely use that. Absolutely. So um, again, this bill is coming out of the office of Richard Bloom and uh, reporting in curb curbed was describing that bill as one that would quote, would allow developers to construct buildings with up to 100 units of housing in these areas, depending on a project's proximity to major streets and business districts. Depending on the size of the project, up to 50% of those units would need to be reserved for low-income tenants, end quote. So this bill would also include a, uh, a fourplex zoning change for those same high-resource areas, but the overall unit count that, they would be, that the bill would permit is, uh, is lower than what would have been possible under SB 50 if that bill had mm -hmm. passed. Um, the key difference here really is that this bill is specifically crafted to avoid worsening the displacement issues that come with gentrification, and thus it could prove to be more palatable to the legislators who had used housing equity as cover for opposing uh, SB 50. And like we know that there are a number of legislators who who genuinely were concerned about you know the equity impact of SB 50, but we also saw folks like in LA City Council who were opposing it. Uh, purely because they're like must protect single family homes. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see like what they do now because they won't be able to say, well, this is, you know, it doesn't include enough affordability and it, it targets these um, more economically precarious neighborhoods. So uh, let's keep our eyes open on that one. So yeah. yeah, that's AB 1279. So it sounds like AB 1905 is going to also target single family homes. Uh, yeah. But for those of us lucky enough to have a second. <laughs> Perhaps even a, a third home. 
you know. <laughs> yeah, so so this this bill would actually uh, it's coming out of David Chu's office. He's the uh, the rep from uh, from San Francisco who is so closely tied with a, a number of housing proposals over the last few years. He's really I, I I think we can say that he's probably like one of the the foremost members of the assembly uh, who is proposing stuff. Uh, good proposals relating to housing policy. Um, and this would eliminate the California mortgage interest deduction for folks' second homes, which uh, <laughs> the fact that we even allow it in the first place is absolutely fucking preposterous. Like, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> like, come on. The mortgage interest uh, deduction is already such a massive giveaway, uh, you know, taking taking money from the public purse and giving it to people who uh, disproportionately are are wealthier than the majority of the uh, folks who would otherwise be benefiting. Like this is a, a wealth transfer mechanism uh, from the bottom to the top. And it, it's, it's awful. And the fact that it still exists, like it, honestly, it shouldn't exist for like anyone, but uh, it does. And it is good to be seeing it starting to be winnowed down. This bill would actually also lower the size of the mortgage interest rate uh, deduction that homeowners can claim even for their primary residence. So uh, Chu you know, gave contextualization for this uh, bill when he uh, made a, released a statement on it stating that, quote, while thousands of Californians sleep on our streets every night, it makes little sense for the state to subsidize the wealthy's ability to own two homes, end quote. And, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I, I mean, and, 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 and at the same time, you know, this is also not fundamentally uh, a huge change because since interest rates are at historic lows, um, most people who are claiming the mortgage interest deduction aren't seeing that great a performance on that kind of tax subsidy. Co correct. At the same time, though, like, you you shouldn't be able to own a second to a second home that's got a tax deduction attached to it. That's for just, sure, that's, and that's and stupidity. The, the proposed like so the the calculations out of Chu's office actually show that this change could bring uh, between four and five hundred million dollars in uh, additional revenue into the state coffers. So um, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah. Let's do it. No, it's not too bad. Let's also so let's talk about uh, the bill that Jim Beal just introduced, and he's coming out of San Jose. Yes, so this is SB seven ninety five, and this is a bill that would bring back a source of funding that's similar to those you know now defunct and oft lamented redevelopment agencies. Um, but the funding would, according to Curbed, allow local governments to quote construct affordable housing and dense developments near transit, as well as infrastructure to mitigate traffic and protect communities from fires and floods. So Beal released a statement when he was announcing the introduction of this new bill that said, uh, quote, the solution to homelessness is a home. We need an ongoing funding source to help local communities if we are serious about addressing this crisis, end quote. And just for a little bit more context, the uh, those, those redevelopment agencies have a really checkered history in California. Yeah. Like the, yes. that, they were the one that was, there was a redevelopment agency that was responsible for the complete like leveling of the Bunker Hill neighborhood in downtown LA, which is why we now have no more of those old Victorian homes. They all got moved up to, uh, I think it was Angelino Heights. Um, and we, they've been replaced with, uh, those mega skyscrapers that with, were built in the seventies and eighties. They literally <laughs> pushed people's houses out of the way yep. and built banks. So that's yep. cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of get what he's going for here, but at the same time, I wonder, 
you know, would adding another agency to City Hall really make that process better? Or would it be better to just, it's, like, realign city government to achieve that aim, which, you know, that, I don't know, seems the more efficient way to so, go about it. Um, but at the same time, I feel like... I new agencies. It's just going to bring more funding in. But, yeah. Yeah, but somebody's got to, like, receive and use yeah, and utilize true. that fair funding. Point. So, But at the same time, <laughs> it, it just, point. it seems like as much as the assembly can help in this without the city fundamentally changing its approach to any of this stuff, like we're not going to see a change. Um, so I'm yeah. just more advocating for, Hey, uh, your mail-in ballot is probably arrived and you should definitely make sure to, <laughs> to vote for the folks who want to upend the existing order. But absolutely. Before we get too far into that, let's talk about uh, AB 2058, which is a bill by Jesse Gabriel uh, from the San Fernando Valley. Correct. This is a bill that would be targeting uh, affordable housing projects that are facing expiring covenants. This is particularly, uh, you know, applicable for us right now, given the context of the uh, Hillside Villa news that we were discussing last week. Um, the owners of these buildings would be receiving tax incentives in exchange for preserving the affordability in their buildings when their covenants are expiring. Uh, the bill could really help preserve some 25,000 affordable units across the state. And in L.A. alone, we've got 12,000 of these things that are going to have their covenants expiring in the next, com in the next few years. Uh, the California Housing Partnership actually released a study at the beginning of last year that found that between 1997 and 2018, we had lost 5,256 affordable units thanks to the expiration of covenants. So this is a, a, a big step, and I apologize if everyone's getting to hear the fire truck that's uh, running up and down the street right now. Um, but this this bill is something that would be potentially really good because we, we've, we've discussed this in the past, like our affordable housing in this state really only is protected for like 30 years at a time. And it seems so fundamentally backward. It's not like we're going to stop needing affordable housing 30 years after a building was was built. Like, yeah. well, why, it, why is it not permanent? Well, it's also one of the, the things is the the landlords don't really upkeep or upgrade the buildings oh, because yeah, they claim sure. that you know they're not making enough money because they're having to to offer uh, reduced rents. At the same time, like we know that many of these landlords have taken advantage of these tax incentives, and when a rent controlled or an affordable uh, rent tenant moves out, they replace them with a market rate tenant, but still keep cashing 100%. the checks for the tax rebates. Uh, <laughs> and that's something like we don't just need these covenants, you know, extended and strengthened. We also need more oversight over the landlords. And that's why, like, as much as I, I, I like this bill as it's a good start, I think the eminent domain and just making the, the city yeah. government responsible and turning that into social housing is the the better long-term plan but this is a good sure. a good way to not lose the stock that we've got yes agreed and buffy wicks from oakland uh who always makes me think of buffy the vampire slayer um, <laughs> i was thinking the exact same thing that's funny yeah um, uh, uh, yeah <laughs> but buffy wicks just introduced a bill um for uh, that's also aimed at, at tenants who are making like 80 percent of the the median wage in an, an area trying to expand affordability to more working families absolutely so this is ab 725 and uh this is the 
the range of incomes that are, are typically referred to as workforce housing. Um, I didn't actually catch what the upper end of what she's targeting with this bill would be, but uh, workforce housing is uh, what is targeted at folks making between 80 and 120% of AMI for all of you that really just want to do the math. Um, let's just go ahead and read directly from the curb reporting on this. It says, quote, uh, because this is really confusing and I'm not quite sure how this is going to work out, but quote, the bill would require cities to allow developments with at least two units, but no more than 35 units per acre on 25% of the land they set aside for both moderate and above moderate income housing. That would facilitate construction of quote, duplexes, triplexes, and thoughtful multifamily housing, end quote, said Wiki, said Wix, not Wiki, uh, last week during an assembly hearing. She argued that the bill would obligate cities to increase residential density, quote, while still honoring the fabric of our communities, end quote. Um, so uh, the language in there is not very fun But so basically, like, you could build a, a bungalow sort of development. Yeah, you could build like, like that. some triplexes or quadplexes if you wanted to, like on a decent acre. So, I mean, like that's not the the worst idea in the world to kind of extend affordability uh, a little bit, yeah. but obviously in what I'm thinking would be more upscale neighborhoods to begin with. Like, I feel like that's where yes. that development would happen. And it, it's kind of aimed at those people, people who are making, you know, enough-ish money, um, who also, like, that is one of the big problems in, in L.A. and California is that missing middle of housing um, for people yes. who, you know, do work a 40-hour-a-week job for a corporation. You know, if you're not able to float a $1.5 million mortgage, you can't really afford to buy a house, so where are you supposed to go? Yeah, for sure. Um, so it's worth noting also that this bill has actually already made it through the Assembly and is waiting to be considered by the Senate at this point. So... That, I think, wraps it up for basically what's going on in the state legislature. Yeah, I guess we'll have to, to wait and uh, see if another May massacre rolls around for the state's housing bills. Uh, <laughs> I know I know Scott Wiener said he's got two placeholder bills, so he's going to be you know yep. filling in the details on those probably pretty soon. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, though, Mayor London Breed up in San Francisco uh, kind of came out swinging on housing policy. So let's talk about how this got picked up by the national news. Yeah, so this was picked up by the New York Times because, of course, our housing crisis is literally national news at this point. So here's how they described Mayor Breed's proposal. Quote, on Wednesday, the mayor is expected to submit a ballot measure that would amend the city's charter so that buildings with a substantial amount of affordable housing, somewhere between 13 and 20 percent of units, depending on size, could sidestep the legislative process as long as they conform to local zoning codes, end quote. So this would effectively allow you know, buy right construction for anything that meets the local codes without having to go through as much of an arduous approval process at that San Francisco is actually pretty, pretty renowned for. Um, Mayor Breed's previous attempts at changing housing policy in San Francisco have been basically just blocked straight up by the Board of Supervisors up there. And this time around, she's actually taking this directly to the voters by making it a ballot initiative, which means that her team is going to need to collect some 50,000 signatures from registered voters in order to make it onto the ballot in November. Um, worth pointing out here that there are only around 900,000 people living in San Francisco, so collecting signatures from 50,000 voters is going to be uh, difficult. Well, but they <laughs> all live on to top of time. each other. I mean, it is like, this is true. it's pretty condensed, so. <laughs> yeah, the, true, but still, that's a that's a pretty sizable proportion of the, of the voting public. Um, one last paragraph from the New York Times on this, quote, 
At the heart of the proposal is a belief that regulation has a cost and that developers would be willing to volunteer to take lower rents on more units in exchange for the certainty of a faster and more predictable approval process, end quote. And I just got to say, like, honestly, if that's the basis of this, uh, I would argue that you should look at most of the transit-oriented stuff with, like, JJJ here in L.A. and realize that it really doesn't seem to work. Like, yeah. the developers just don't care because if they can make more money by having a luxury building with no affordable housing in it, they don't really seem to give a shit about like increased density, faster approval process, any of that. They just, it, it, it it's not getting built. It's just not. So I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things of saying like, let's find a market solution to a problem that is inherent in the market and it seems like a fundamentally backward approach to me, um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. I mean, it's you know, it's going to be first they got to gather those fifty thousand signatures. So, who yeah. knows? Well, and it's also one of those things where, with the nature of modern ownership of apartment buildings, you know, the person who first builds this isn't going to be the same person who owns it in five years because oh, yeah. they're going to flip it. And things are going to change very quickly. Like even if the building starts out in the affordability range. Uh, I I think it quickly disappears, but it's also I th I think you're completely right on this. Like market-based initiatives aren't really going to solve the problem. Saying something like rent control or vacancy decontrol or something that's going to like yeah. ensure that long-term sustainability. I mean, it's not like the mini SB fifty that a lot of people were saying she was going to be releasing, but at the same time, it still has that that same sort of aim to it. But speaking yeah. of rent control, let's yeah. hop across the pond and talk about <laughs> what they did in Berlin, uh, which pissed off a lot of people in like the New York Times and Bloomberg and stuff. They were not fans of this at all. Uh, but what did the good people of Berlin do, Chris? Well, um, I am so happy that they did this. It makes me so just genuinely excited. Uh, they, they approved legislation on January 30th. Uh, that is going to basically be implementing a rent freeze or even rent decreases on over 1.5 million apartments in the city of Berlin. Um, this is huge. So Berlin uh, is it's a very different like home ownership versus renter population uh, dynamic than what you see in like, anywhere in the U.S., where only 18% of the city's population actually own their own homes. So this is Absolutely incredible news. Um, at a news conference today after the legislation was approved, uh, Caltrin Romscher, and I am definitely going to be butchering these names, uh, this is Berlin's Senator for City Development and Living, said that, quote, we have created an instrument that will stop the partially absurd price developments for the next five years. It is up to politicians to create the basic conditions for lower and middle class earners to be able to afford to live in Berlin, end quote. Of course, this can't happen without some folks being upset by the new law, like like those over at Bloomberg and the New York Times. And uh, so real estate developers and members of uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel's uh, conservative party have actually already been threatening to challenge this law immediately. Uh, Jürgen Michael Stick, who is the president of Germany's Real Estate Association, so good on you, sir, uh, said that, quote, 
The rent cap is equivalent to an expropriation and is a catastrophe for Berlin's real estate market. Limiting and reducing the income from rents will create uncertainty for investors and will ward off real estate developers from investing, end quote. Um, yeah, so for some additional context here, rental prices in Berlin in 2017 were 20% higher than they were in 2016. This was like, Berlin was, I believe, the worst uh, rental increase in like all of the world, like major world cities that were reporting these numbers. Yeah, that's uh, pretty for nuts. For 2017. Absolutely. So uh, the other thing worth pointing out here is that this change will benefit some 3 million renters in Berlin. And guess how big Berlin is? 3.75 million people. So this is 80% of the population. Uh, get fucked, real estate vampires. Well, get it's fucked. also, you know, it's almost the size of LA. And obviously, the way yeah. Berlin has developed proper, is significantly yeah. different than the way LA has developed. This is true. <laughs> you know, LA <laughs> County uh, is the the elephant in the room that's really sitting around the room. But at the same time, it shows that like this <laughs> this kind of like large scale change <laughs> is completely possible. Like you can do that and like instantly protect three million people from getting evicted oh, um, and so give them good. some stability. And eighty percent. Yeah, and it, it's also one where like. Here in L.A., as we're fighting for higher minimum wage, because even when we get to $15 an hour, like, A, we're not doing that for another year, I think, completely. Yeah. And even when we get to $15 an hour, like, that's still not actually enough. Like, that's still not enough money to afford to live in the city where you're working. So we still have a long yep. way to go on, like, the the sort of externalities that also affect affordability and, and issues that like Berlin in and of itself doesn't have to deal with. But even considering that, like with a universal healthcare system like Germany has with like a strong pension program, like Germany has with the uh, stronger labor union system that Germany has, they still found rent to be that much of a crisis. Like yeah. this just keeps bringing me back to the fact that like housing is it the biggest issue out there. Like, it's the one 100%. where even when all of the other issues skew in the other direction than they do in the U.S., and especially in, especially in L.A., uh, rent is still, like, the biggest fight. Like, that's still the one that has to be overcome. So I think that's nuts. Uh, but, yeah, let's transition away from Berlin, and let's talk <laughs> about Mr. Lee Baca, uh, who is finally going to jail. Like, it took forever but after getting convicted of lying to the feds, uh, he's going to a federal, pres uh, federal prison out of state, I understand. Yeah, so on Tuesday last week, uh, disgraced former L.A. County Sheriff Lee Baca arrived at the federal correctional institution, Latuna, which is a low-security prison outside of El Paso. So back in 2017, he was sentenced to three years in jail for his role in attempting to block a federal probe into inmate abuses in the county jail system, and then, of course, lying to investigators about trying to block said investigation. Um, what it comes down to, like, if you could, like, I, every time I read up about this, I basically have forgotten just how absolutely absurd this whole situation was. Like, they were shuffling around an informant who uh, they didn't realize beforehand was an informant, and then yeah. they were trying to, like, use that to cover it up because they were like, oh, no, well, if we just pretend that the informant isn't available, then the FBI can't do anything about yeah, it. if we just it lose was, him in it, the jail system. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, the, the whole, it was just 
uh, absolutely incredible that, that, that this was going on in the LA jail system. Um, so back in 2014, he Baca actually stepped down as sheriff because of this scandal. And uh, a great paragraph from the LA Times article on this whole uh, situation is that, quote, in his closing words to the jury, the lead prosecutor, uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Brandon Fox, condemned Baca as a cowardly king who chose to protect himself while sending pawns and other underlings to do his, quote unquote, dirty work. So this is all about the fact that he was using uh, under Sheriff Tanaka to actually like manage the, the, the shell game of hiding this informant. Um, and he was just kind of shepherding the whole thing along. I mean, look, to be, to, give, to be completely fair. If I had like a right hand man who had a white supremacist gang tattoo, I would probably have that guy do the dirty work too. I mean, he just, you know, the, the tattoo. Yeah. Uh, yes. Um, I get it. It makes sense. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's really good to see that there's finally some closure coming to this. It did. It took three years from the conviction to actually uh, get him to. Uh, be taken to jail, which really is very, um, very indicative, I would say, of the uh, the difference in in the way that your case is handled when you're a person who is coming from a background of privilege versus a uh, person who has been uh, a victim of the you know state oppression from the beginning of your life. So it's good to see that this is happening. I, I'm still a prison abolitionist, but. Um, you know, some people like, we don't have any system right now to deal with folks like Baca. Um, and until we do, this is the best we can do. And, uh, yeah, at the, at the same time, like a lot person. of the problems that were brought up in the course of this case, like, especially, um, the deputy gangs that operate in the jails and like oh, the very yeah. quick system they have, those still things there. are still happening and are still yeah, like an are. actual problem. Uh, and, and a problem that Villanueva has not dealt with um, and a problem that's getting like much more community attention. So it's kind of, yeah, you know, it's good that, that this trial got on the record that all that stuff was happening in federal depositions. At the same time, yep. not enough has been done to fix that problem or to focus on it. Uh, and it seems like the County Board of Supervisors might finally be moving that way, um, which yeah. you know could be a good thing. But another thing that will move us that way is Measure R. So you were at a meeting yes. the other week or uh, earlier this week, last week. I don't know. We, we're coming End in real late this week. <laughs> yeah, we are. Anyways, uh, <laughs> broadcasting on a day that ends in Y. But anyway, so last yep. week you were at a meeting for Measure R. So let's talk a little bit about this, the reform LA jails uh, measure that's going to be on the March 3rd ballot. Yeah, so this is a ballot initiative um, that was put together by a bunch of folks who are, it's, it's a coalition of people who are being led by some of the most impacted populations, uh, you know, relative to state violence and oppression in this entire county, um, namely women of color. And it is a, a coalition that has been fighting for a long, long time to see some meaningful reforms in the LA jail system. Um, and also trying to get some actual oversight and clarity into what the hell is going on in the sheriff's department. So Measure R is going to basically take, uh, if we vote to approve it, which we absolutely should, 
uh, would take the some three and a half billion dollars that had previously been slated for construction of new prisons to replace the you know like the Twin Towers facility and and some others um, with more prisons because we love to spend billions of dollars on our incarceration state because that's one of the things that California just loves to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've we've been able to to, to you know with the reform LA jails has been able to block that so far and it's it's great. But now this measure R would actually take that three and a half billion dollars and have it invested into um, you know alternatives to incarceration and exploration of what more of those alternatives would be. So we're talking about things like actually getting people the kind of counseling and mental health support that they need outside of a jail cell. We're talking about actual like reentry programs that could meaningfully improve people's ability to you know, function on a day-to-day basis in a system that has been beating them up every day of their lives. Like this is when we talk about things like restorative justice, this is the beginning of how you start to implement an actual uh, program of restorative justice at the county level. Yep. It's a very measured approach to changing our current prison culture and like in pri- or culture of imprisonment rather. Uh, and it's, it's really, really exciting. But one of the other things that this would do is that measure R would uh, provide a more, uh, a more bulletproof version of a subpoena power. So this is this is something else that happened uh, very recently. Was that the county board of supervisors actually approved uh, the creation of a subpoena power for the civilian oversight commission, who are in charge of basically investigating what the hell is going on within the sheriff's department, but who have had up until this point really no no teeth, no tools to be actually able to compel any testimony or collect any evidence in those investigations or do anything other than offer like advisory rulings and suggestions. Um, so the board of supervisors created uh, or, or granted subpoena power to the civilian oversight commission. Um, measure R will actually enshrine that, protect that, that subpoena power in a far more uh, like legally defensible from what I understand uh, situation because it will provide a you know the mandate of the public, so it's it's a much more difficult thing to actually try to attack. Yeah. Um, and then there's also state legislation that's working its way through the process right now that would uh, further enshrine this in the California Constitution, saying that um, these kinds of civilian oversight commissions do have uh, the subpoena power necessary to actually investigate what the hell is going on in prison systems and within sheriff's departments, um, because of course the sheriff's department runs the prisons. And they use the prisons as a way of indoctrinating and uh, hazing effectively all of their deputies as they as they start out. They have to go through the prison system before they can become uh, a sheriff's deputy on 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 like patrol. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a dehumanizing experience, an othering experience, where they frankly are are trained to. Uh, approach anyone who isn't one of them as like a huge potential threat um, as basically like treating them like they're animals. And uh, we, we see the results. We have literally the deadliest police force in the country within the LA Sheriff's department and, the, and LAPD. And this is part of why that is the case. Yep. And so getting to actually shine the light on this, like, yeah, we, we, the civilian oversight commission is not going to actually have the ability to hire or fire deputies, but at the same time, they will be able to air this entire investigation in a public forum where reporters can be sitting there and listen to this and actually get the, like get the story out there. And then the public can be made aware of it 
And that is a huge thing. We need to be able to shine this, uh, this kind of light and investigation into the whole process. So vote for yeah, vote yes on R. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, March 3rd, like it, that is a really good step for the County. And I think yes. for the rest of the state, because Los Angeles County is the biggest jailer in the world and we're bigger than yeah. the rest of California, even though California itself is also the biggest jailer in the world. Uh, yeah, yep. it's a nesting doll <laughs> of terribleness. Damn. Um, oh, but yeah. we, we finally, you know, with the, uh, changes to men's central that are coming and some moves towards like focusing on a more rehabilitative, uh, justice system or at least a uh, criminal legal system and like remedies for people who are convicted of crimes. Like we're taking baby steps in the right direction. I hope, 100%. um, we, we, you know, the other thing with measure R is it's going to come up against the wall of Villanueva. Um, and he's going to be there for a few years. So it will be interesting to see that power start off with a sheriff who is not so down to responding to civilian oversight, um, even when <laughs> it's coming it from other elected officials who are like <laughs> technically his boss and control his budget. Uh, but let's yeah. talk about what's coming out. So this is, it sounds like SB 207 is coming in a little bit too late to affect the upcoming primary, but it should make it easier in the future for people to vote in the primary process in the races that they want to. Well, so maybe we'll see. But uh, this this SB 207 is a bill that's come out of Melissa Hurtado's office, uh, and it's actually already on its way to Governor Newsom's desk after it passed through the Senate on Thursday last week. So if he signs it, um, according to reporting in Politico, it would, quote, allow voters to submit a written request to county election officials changing their party registration or address within 14 days of an election until the close of polls on Election Day. Um, so this could still have an impact on the current primary if he signs it like now um i don't know how long it would take him to implement it but theoretically it might have an impact so we'll, we'll see i mean it, it in la county it's not a, a, a something that's going to really change uh, anything because you can basically do you can do same day registration effectively if you go to any of the polling centers so it's really not going to have much of an impact here on us in los angeles but it would have an impact on the rest of the state yeah, exactly. It, would, it, it probably wouldn't do much here because L.A. County is experimenting with some really progressive features. Uh, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, I guess we'll know yeah. at, the, at the end of the day on March 4th when we see how the numbers look as far as like more people voting, um, what numbers showed up at the actual voting centers to do that. But at the same time, I think especially as more people are choosing no party preference, but definitely want to yes. vote in one of the two big party primaries for president, um, it should be easier for folks to access that and do that because that's one of the, the things where it's harder to get out on the ground and organize and teach people about what they need to do to get their vote counted in the way they want in a lot of the more rural parts of California. Like, so yeah. much of California is so empty and it is so hard to get people out there on the ground or get a field office open up there. Yeah. So like this kind of, you know, minor bureaucratic change will probably open up voting for a decent number of people who want it. So, you know, it's not the most exciting thing in the world, but, uh, yeah, and, no. And, and, and this until is, we go back to trial by combat in the hell world, I figure, you know, <laughs> 
to and be it, it is specifically targeted at like the non no party preference voters. Um, so yeah. the bill's co-author, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez out of San Diego, said that quote, "We need to ensure California's nonpartisan and independent voters are able to cast a ballot for the presidential candidate they prefer. Voting ought to be easy, and AB 207 will streamline the process to allow these independent voters less hassle than normal when voting for the preferred candidate." End quote. So that's the point. That's what they're trying to do. And let's. I mean, maybe it'll work. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, let's move on to something that, I don't know. I mean, like, if it had worked, it would have been interesting. I don't think it would have been yeah. good. But uh, the the recall of Mayor Garcetti. How, how's the recall yes. campaign going, Chris? Uh, it's dead. It's, it's dead. I can't believe uh, so- that those very trustworthy people <laughs> were unable to deliver on this. I am, uh, I am yeah. Surprise. Shocked. <laughs> Shocked, I'd say. Uh, so this was a recall that was launched by the uh, massive Trump supporter, Alexandra Datig. Datig? I, I don't know how to pronounce her last name. Um, but according to her Twitter bio, she is a, quote, an American political commentator, media research specialist, and publisher of Front Page Index. Which quote. her website um, is ridiculously bad. It's is it? so uh, old I, I school look. looking and just it's, it's not is good. Is it like GeoCities? Yeah, kind of. I mean, maybe a step up from that. Like, maybe a GeoCity is like 2.0, but it definitely, like, <laughs> it has a very specific vintage web look, and it's not oh, It's not for the better, you know? Nice. Um, well, so, apparently she's also got a podcast, so uh, don't go check that out, folks, for your safe, for your safety safety, and your, your sanity. Uh, just d- don't, don't go listen. Um, but, yeah, so the, the committee that uh, she was heading up and that was taking care of this whole signature gathering process um, reported that they had collected around 50,000 signatures, um, which, you know, that's, that's still a lot of people who are very upset with Garcetti and are definitely not the ready for Garcetti crew. Um, but they fell well short of the 316,000 signatures that would be needed in order for them to even submit the petition to the clerk's office, let alone get it actually onto the ballot because they would need to get those signatures verified and certified. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, that's a pretty spectacular failure of you got less than a sixth of what you needed to, yeah. to get there. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not too upset that the, you know, let's impeach Garcetti because he won't beat up the homeless enough crowd didn't get there. Yeah. You know, that was right? the other thing is like, I remember. That's, that was the whole impetus behind it. Well, because they were trying to sell it sort of like to be palatable to the left-ish because they know that Garcetti isn't, you know, friends with, the left any more than he is with the right, um, or at least the the far right, and they were trying to couch it in like this is about the the crisis on our streets and about human compassion. And then when you like actually dug into what they wanted, you're like, oh wow, this is like you just want to do Trump, and that's what you're angry at Garcetti about, which is weird because like Garcetti and Trump are getting like really uh, close together on those issues. So I think maybe these folks th- just like yeah, jumped yeah. the gun. You know, we'll, yeah. we'll have to yeah. wait and see. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, All right, let's talk about another one of Garcetti's massive failings because, you know, we're on a a roll here. Uh, Vision Zero uh, and our continuing inability to get anywhere near to Vision Zero. Yeah, so Laura Nelson, who is the LA Times transportation and mobility reporter, wrote a, a frankly just damning piece on the state of Garcetti's implementation of Vision Zero. Uh, we talked about this in our year-end episode uh, in pretty good detail, talking about the many, many failings 
Um, but yeah, so the, the headline from that article in the LA Times was, quote, as LA traffic deaths stay high, officials plead with drivers to stop texting, end quote. Um, I so mean, yeah, that's yeah definitely but that's the... not the, <laughs> like, yes, but not really yes, the but... crux of the problem. <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, just wait. There's a there's a very uh, choice quote from uh, uh, LAPD Chief Michael Moore at the end here, but uh, it's yeah, we'll we'll get there. So um, later in the article, Nelson was citing a truly jarring pair of statistics that illustrates just how badly Vision Zero has been uh, not working in our city. Quote: Over a five year period this decade, people on foot were involved in eight percent of collisions, but represented forty four percent of those killed, according to city data. Um, Nelson goes on to point out that while the total number of folks who are killed in vehicle collisions has gone down, the proportion of those victims who are pedestrians perishing in this in these collisions has actually gotten significantly worse quote in 2019 about 55 percent of the people killed in traffic crashes were on foot an increase from 40 percent in the year vision zero began end quote so it's uh, i mean i don't know how else to judge this other than to say that like vision zero is absolutely just not working in la and this is like really the the alarming thing about this is that the department of transportation like the transportation department rather is doing a lot to try to improve the conditions on our streets but there's it's just not making a dent so um, the some of those changes, the department's spokeswoman, uh, Connie Lanos, told the Times that in 2019, they had made 1,529 modifications to crosswalks, traffic signals, intersections, and other elements of the street that are intended to improve safety, and pointed out that that was more than uh, what had been accomplished in the two years leading up to it. So uh, they're doing a lot and they're ramping that effort up and, and it's just not making a dent. There have been like, there's a bunch of traffic scrambles going in. There's a lot of stuff happening that is, you know, good in terms of like pedestrian and active transit. And like a lot of the safety issues around that at the same time, I don't feel like the majority of LA's streets are really getting that much safer, but more the, the kind of very important intersections that city council members care about those are getting touched up and dealt with. At the same time, like, the city council is also, like, taking out some crosswalks and, like, blocking road diets yeah. and the things that we, like, ultimately need. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just kind of to bring this back around, also, you know, favoring building a robust public transit system so we just get people out of cars. Yeah. Like, there's too that's many you, cars on the street to move that yeah, number of 100%. people. We can do that way more efficiently and safely. Um yeah, I don't know. Just a point yeah. of frustration. But so I, I get the sense that um, Chief Moore is going to blame <sighs> pedestrians again because we have like <laughs> electron repulsion. You know, if we didn't, if we weren't in the same phase reality as the car, oh. it would be able to drive right through us. But we gotta, we gotta not do that, and so we we get hit with it, and that transfers you know, oh, yeah. energy into our body, which like sends us flying and causes, you know, life ending injuries. Uh, but yeah, what did Chief Moore have to say? Uh, well, yeah. So he was true to form here. Um, and so at the, let, I'm just going to read the last three articles, or the, the last three paragraphs rather of the article from the LA times on this. And here we go. Quote, Moore said the LAPD also plans to work with community groups to educate pedestrians about staying alert while they cross the street. He said that even God if pedestrians have the right of way, <laughs> I told you, 
Quote, that doesn't stop a speeding car that's paying attention to a text message rather than the roadway, end quote. Um, of course, the idea that distracted texting is as much of a problem as distracted driving, Yi, uh, so Yi, by the way, is a, uh, uh, a community advocate for a, a pedestrian safety group um, and who was being interviewed by the LA Times for this article. Uh, Yi also said, quote, this shows how far Los Angeles has to go on Vision Zero, end quote. Yeah. That's yeah. Um, and you continued later, quote, uh, just look at a three ton vehicle that's moving at a high speed versus me, a bag of flesh who weighs 130 pounds. He said, it's ridiculous. Y- yes. Yes, yeah. it is. Fuck you, Michael Moore. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's, it's the, the rise of SUVs and speed limits. Like that's literally just vulnerable road users. And uh, yeah, easy fix to that one. If we actually wanted to have it. Uh God damn it. Why? Michael Moore, you're terrible. Yeah. No, it absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So uh, let's talk about some cathartic things we got uh, coming up this week. Yes. All right. So, well, as always, there is the Black Lives Matter weekly vigil that's going to be happening on Wednesday downtown at 211 West Temple. As always, the vigil starts at four, runs until six. Be there. Be a part of it. Hold that space. It's fantastic. Get involved. Uh, Latu, we've got the Los Angeles Tenants Union has a number of meetings coming up this week. On Monday the 10th, they've got the Hollywood Local happening uh, from 6.30 to 8.30. Wednesday, the Northeast Local is going to be meeting from 7 to 9. And then they've got the North Hollywood Local, the South LA Local, and the East Side Local all meeting up on Thursday uh, at various times that evening. Actually, no, sorry, I stand corrected. They are all meeting from 639. Uh, and then on Friday, the Canoga Park Local, which I actually didn't realize that they had a Canoga Park Local. That's awesome. Uh, they're going to be meeting on Valentine's Day from 3 to 5 at uh, Templo La Hermosa Apostolic assembly, or rather apostolic, because they switched from Spanish to English there in the middle of the name, uh, the Apostolic Assembly Church that's located on Eaton Avenue in Canoga Park. And then they apparently might have another local meeting happening the next day, but one of those I'm sure is a typo. So uh, check out their website for more information as the week goes on. And of course, you can always join us at the ground game meetings that happen every Thursday from 7.30 till 9 p.m. at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard, just a couple of blocks from the uh, Western Hollywood Western Metro stop. Uh, it'd be great to see you. So as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to be taking part in, publicizing, or just being made aware of, send us a message. You can reach us through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or by email at podcast at groundgamela.org. This podcast and every Ground Game podcast is a production of Knock.LA. Support our work on Patreon at patreon.com slash knock underscore LA. Check the description for sources, links to actions, and social media links, of course. And as one final note, the Knock Voter Guide will be going live tomorrow. You can check that out to get some reporting from both Bushido and I about why you should vote for certain candidates and not for other ones. Uh, And it's kind of a juicy one this time around. It it always is. But I think uh, (laughs) we've had a lot of people asking about it. Uh, We're, you know, not pulling any punches this time around. Uh, It's going to be... Uh, a really insane couple of weeks. Uh, Don't forget to get out there and vote uh, because you can do good things with your vote like the Academy did tonight when they gave Best Picture to Parasite. So... Did they? Oh, hell yeah. That is the only time I've cared about an Oscar in 
moons, like many ages. That's fantastic. And Wait, so, who, which, which one won uh, Best Documentary? Oh, uh, American Factory, and the, the filmmaker behind it apparently said Workers of the World Unite, which, um, yes. not really the message of that movie that was produced by Barack Obama, um, but I, but still, but still good, like cool, um, moving in the right direction. Uh, but anyways, uh, thank you all very much for listening this week. Uh, have yourselves a good week and, uh, don't forget to vote. I keep, I'm going to keep saying that. Yeah, vote and uh, knock on doors for the good candidates. Knock on doors for Nithya. Knock on doors for Lorraine. Uh, make calls and text and knock on doors for, for Measure R. Uh, these things are good, and we need people to be engaged to make them all happen. So, yeah, thanks for listening.